Well, good morning. It is uh, especially good to gather together after being able to do so last week. I was talking with uh, Viola before service, and it's amazing how you miss you miss one Sunday and it feels like you haven't seen people for months. You know, it's it's really wild. But uh, the Lord is so good to uh, create us to be people who live in community. Right? He has designed things to be that way, and He has designed His church to be that way. There is no lone wolf solo Christian life. He has made us to be in fellowship together with each other and with him. So it is uh, good and it is sweet to be with you all this morning. Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 as we continue through the gospel of Matthew today. Matthew chapter 10 is where we will be at. Now, what would you think uh, about a surgeon who fainted at the sight of blood? Yeah, he probably wouldn't be going under the knife. Uh, what about a banker who was bad at counting? You don't want him, you don't want him uh, you know, cashing your deposit for you. What about a bus driver who has no depth perception? Right? I'm not, not getting on that bus. Most likely you would think that they are unfit. They're not cut out for the job. Right? They don't have what it takes. They're not suitable. They're not qualified to do that kind of work. And when it comes to discipleship to Jesus Christ, there is a similar principle. There are certain things that disciples of Christ must be willing to do in order to be considered worthy of discipleship to Christ. In the text we'll be in for the next two weeks as we finish up Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives us four whoever statements. Uh, really, these are statements related to discipleship that delineate what Jesus expects of those who would be his disciples. And each of these four statements, uh, really they challenge us to consider our own understanding of discipleship and to examine if we are willing to pursue obedience to the Lord or if we are devoted to other things first before him. Well, let's read our text starting in verse 34. We'll be in verses 34 through 38 this morning and finish up the passage next Sunday, but we'll read all the way down to verse 42. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God. Let's ask for his help as we come to it this morning. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. That it makes wise the simple, that it enlightens the eyes, Lord. That it, it brings life and rejuvenation to the soul. Your word is so good, Lord. Sweeter than honey. Better than the finest gold. And as we read these sayings from Jesus, these teachings from our Lord this morning, they may not immediately seem that way. For they are hard. They are challenging. 
Lord, they confront us in areas that we like to keep cordoned off. The things that we consider our own business, and yet Jesus says all of it is his business. And so, Lord, we pray for your help this morning as we come to your word, as we hear the words of our Savior. Lord, open up our hearts. Show us, Lord, those things that we love more than Christ. Show us those things that we prize more than him, that we may repent of them, Lord. Lord, give us understanding, and may that understanding lead to righteous, spirit-empowered action. We pray for your help in these things. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we've been in Matthew 10 for a few weeks now, and we've seen that it's really about uh, primarily the response of the world to the evangelistic mission of the apostles and the church during the apostolic era. Uh, but at the same time, it's very clear that there is so much of what Jesus says that is also directly applicable and relevant to us. And that's certainly true in these verses that we're looking at this morning. Really, Jesus is making something clear to his disciples. Uh, to be a Christian is costly. To be a Christian is costly. We don't get to set the terms for what it means to be a disciple to Jesus. He does. Right? It demands a complete reordering of life, of our love, of self-denial, of obedience. Everything must follow what Jesus says. Right? Whoever's unwilling to do what our Lord says, of course, cannot be his disciple. We'll see that over the next uh, two weeks here. But as I mentioned, there's four whoever sayings in this text. You probably saw it as we read through. Whoever, 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 whoever. And we're going to look at the first two this morning. Whoever would be Jesus' disciple must love him above all, verses 34 through 37. And whoever would be Jesus' disciple must take their cross and follow him, verse 38. As we look at the first verses of this text, starting in verse 34, uh, we, we see something about Jesus. And uh, that is that he shoots uncomfortably straight. Right? Jesus does not beat around the bush. He does not couch things in language that helps us to feel better about what he's saying. He tells it like it is. He tells it like it is. And in verse 34, Jesus begins with a statement that challenges a lot of preconceived notions that both a first century Jew and you and I as modern people might have about Jesus. Now he tells us in verse 34, in no uncertain terms, that he did not come to bring peace to the earth. We should not think that, he says. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. Uh, and that may be a little confusing. It probably was a little confusing to Jesus' disciples as well, because what were they expecting? They were expecting the Messiah to come, triumphantly set up this kingdom that would result in peace, right? World peace, or at least Jewish peace, right? Peace on the earth, that's what they were expecting. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Modern people, like you and I, often see Jesus as a teacher whose wisdom promotes tolerant and peaceful living between human beings, right? For example, Elon Musk was interviewed recently and he said, oh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in Jesus' teaching, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's, that's good, that's wise, that promotes uh, you know, good welfare between human beings. Uh, kind of a, a hippie Jesus, if you will. And, and yet Jesus says here, I did not come to do that. He abolishes both of these misconceptions with this statement in verse 34. Now, did Jesus come to bring peace between God and man? 
Yes, he did. Did Jesus come to bring peace between Jew and Gentile? Yes, he did. But that is a redemptive, salvific peace, not a kind of general social unity, right, where we just kind of feel good and get along. And instead of peace, Jesus says, he came to bring a sword. He came to bring a sword. What does a sword do? Cuts, divides, right? That's the illustration that Jesus is alluding to here. This is a picture of division. And in fact, in Luke's account of this discourse, Luke records Jesus is saying, do you think I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Luke 12, 51. Division, Jesus says. Now, when we hear that word division, um, we, we automatically think bad, right? Division is bad. That's, that's the association our mind goes to right away. And, and oftentimes it is, right? Division is certainly not always a good thing. Division between uh, Christians, especially, that's very bad. But that's not the kind of division Jesus is talking about here. Okay? In, in God's plan of redemption, this kind of division Jesus talks about is actually good. It's actually a good kind of division. So what's he talking about here? Well, we'll see in a moment, but this, this is really the calling out, the separation of those who belong to him from those who do not. Right? In fact, the word church, we read our New Testament, we see the word church appear. The Greek word that, that is used is ekklesia. And literally what that means is the call out ones. Right? Those who have been called out, a separate group, a separate assembly. And we see this work of God in Christ to divide, separate, call out all over Scripture. Romans 9.24, for example, describes how God has called to himself a people out of, from, both Jew and Gentile. You have these big groups of people, and from out of them, God calls to himself a people. He's separating. He's dividing. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, right? That word holy, we think set apart, separate. Not because of our works, right? Not because we did anything good, because we were better than anyone else, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. But maybe the most clear passage we see about the division between God's people and those who are not his people is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Is where we'll be looking. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. The Apostle Paul is speaking here to the church in Corinth. And here's what he says, starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, meaning the church, right, God's people, are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their people, uh, excuse me, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
This is the kind of division that Jesus is talking about. This is the kind of division that Jesus came to bring. As his message, as the gospel goes out, as his apostles proclaim it, as it spreads throughout the ages, as you and I might share it with somebody, as the elect people, those whom God has chosen for salvation, hear the gospel and respond to it in faith and repentance, as they are born again, then a division occurs. Division occurs. There is a, a, a marked split between believers and unbelievers, between those who worship God and those who worship idols, between those who are clean, so to speak, and those who are unclean, those who serve Christ and those who serve Belial, right? a false god, between those who pursue righteousness and those who pursue lawlessness. They are not the same group. And that's why we see this quotation here in, in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul quotes Isaiah 52. What is, what is God saying to his people here in this quotation? He says, go out from them, divide, be separate, be sanctified. That's the kind of division that Jesus came to bring, to separate his people from the world, to call them out, to bring them out, to uh, purchase for himself a people for his own possession. Titus chapter 2. Separation between God's people and the world. We must be careful not to try to heal that division, right? And bind ourselves to the world again. This, this division, this spiritual sword that Jesus came to bring, cuts down even to the deepest of human relationships. Let's back, uh, go back to verse 35 here in Matthew. The sword cuts to the deepest of human relationships. The natural family, as we see in verse 35. Jesus says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And Jesus speaks here of the division between family members that comes as a result of the gospel. And, and this will inevitably occur as some in a family believe the gospel and others do not. Now, Jesus has referred to this already in verse 21, but that's been more in the context of persecution, being handed over to persecution. Here he's talking about relational division, about a, a, a spiritual split that can occur even within the natural family. He describes here how families will be, again, divided by their responses to him. And he gives us a pretty comprehensive list, right? A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You might, oh, doesn't, doesn't need any help with that last one there. But, <laughs> but the reality here, the, the picture Jesus is painting is that it's any relationship within a family, right? It's, it's, it's comprehensive, right? Comprehensive list. The division that faith in Christ brings can affect any level of family relationship. And that's been true ever since the gospel was proclaimed. Charles Spurgeon remarks that truth provokes opposition Purity excites enmity and righteousness arouses all the forces of wrong, and that's true even in our natural family relationship. And Jesus goes on in verse 6, going so far as to say that a person's enemies will be those of his own household, that a man will have enemies within his own family. Now let's think for a minute about what Jesus is and is not saying here. He is, he's not at any point devaluing the natural human family. Okay, Jesus does not in any way, shape, or form say the family is bad. 
Who created the family? God did. And he created it good. It is a good thing. And you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy the blessings of God's design in the natural family. Right? Family is a good thing. We should fight to preserve it. So Jesus is not denigrating the family here. He is also not saying that Christians should approach their family with hostility, right? Like, like enemies. That's not what he's saying here either. He is saying that our natural family members who are unbelievers will be opposed to the gospel at some level. They will be opposed to the gospel at some level. We may have family members who are openly hostile to Christ, right? Who won't even let you get a word out. They hear the name Jesus and they, uh, you know, erupt into profanity. We may have other family members who, who are more accepting of our beliefs on the surface. Well, that's nice for you, right? Then the, the, the claws come out if you try to evangelize them, right? As long as we don't push that, everything's okay. Really, this division is inevitable, right? If we, if we take what God's Word says seriously about the spiritual condition of man before and after Christ, it's inevitable, right? We, we are citizens of two opposed kingdoms that are at war with each other. If you are in Christ, if you've been brought out, separated, divided, if you have been brought into his kingdom, well, the kingdom of this world is certainly not happy about that. They're not allies. So how could we expect anything less than separation within a family over Christ? And that's, that's a difficult scenario to accept, isn't it? Because, you know, most of the time we, we love our family members, right? Others have better family situations than, than some. Uh, but generally, right, we care about our family members. We want to have good relationships with them. And so Jesus' words here are, are hard. It's not what we want to be the case. And you can imagine for the disciples, right, hearing Jesus' words about what they're going to experience, and, and maybe even, right, some of you, th there's a, a, a pressure, perhaps, a temptation to hide your faith in order to preserve family peace. I wonder if that's what the disciples were thinking about. Is it worth it? And that's why Jesus says uh, probably the hardest phrase in the verses we've looked at so far in verse 37. It's our first whoever statement. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, whoever loves their family more than Christ is not worthy of him. Whether that be parents loving their children more, children loving their parents more, husbands loving their wives more, it doesn't matter. Whoever loves their family more than Christ, he says, is not worthy of him. That is a hard teaching. That is a hard teaching. And Jesus is not saying we shouldn't love our family members. He's not saying that at all. Biblically, we're commanded to do so. He's also not saying, this is good to keep in mind as we look at these, these statements, he's not saying this is what we have to do to be saved, that we cannot be saved until we love our family less than him. Uh, we're justified by faith, not love. But the question is, once we are justified by faith, once we've been saved, once we have come to Christ in faith and repentance, then what? Then what? What is the calling of Christ upon us? It's to love him above all things, even our most dear family members. But again, that's, that's a hard saying. Jesus is demanding a lot here. 
And the question might pop into your, your mind, well, what gives him the right to do that? Does he really have the authority to demand that of his disciples? Well, let's think about this for a second, right? In Jesus' culture, the greatest human duty that you had was to love your family and honor your family. That was, that was as far as human relationships go, that was number one. The only thing that superseded that was God, right? We, we see the fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. That's a command. That's, that's serious stuff. So for Jesus to say, you must love me even above them, that's pretty extreme, culturally speaking. That's pretty extreme. Really, it's a demand that only God can make. It's a demand that only God can make. We, we consider the, the two greatest commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus is not in the neighbor category. Our family's in the neighbor category. That's not where Jesus falls. So for him to make this demand of his disciples, that they are to love him, serve him, honor him, fear him, please him above even their own family, is essentially a claim to deity. Only God has the authority to make this command, and Jesus understands that very well. And no doubt, his disciples do, too. And so Jesus puts forward this difficult saying that those who are unwilling to love Christ more than their families are not suitable. They're not fit. They're not worthy to be his disciples. And that's not to say that we... we, we are earning something, right, that we're, we're deserving of discipleship when we use that term worthy. Really, it's what is the response Jesus is worthy of. That's, that's what we're talking about. Those who are unwilling to consider him worthy of all love above everything else, they are not cut out to be his disciples. There is something they prize, someone they value more than him. Which means ultimately when they're put to the test, right, and I think this is a big reason Jesus says this to the 12 apostles here, but when they are put to the test, who will they choose? Their family or Christ? If they love their family more, who will they choose? So if we're going to take Jesus' words seriously, which we should, then we need to consider what does it mean to love Christ more than our own natural family? What does it mean? What is he asking of us here? Well, again, it means to serve Christ, to seek to please him and honor him above all other people, right? That what matters to us ultimately is what Christ thinks and what Christ approves of rather than anybody else, even our own family. It means to love him and prioritize his will over anything else, right? Faithfulness to Christ must come before faithfulness to family. That's what Jesus is saying here. Augustine, a brilliant Christian from the early church, uh, imagines a dialogue about what this might sound like in practice, right? The Christian says, I will love you in Christ, but not instead of Christ. You will be with me in him, but I will not be with you without him, speaking to the family member. And the unbelieving family responds, but we don't care for Christ, they say. And the Christian replies, and I care for Christ more than I care for you. Should I obey the ones who raised me and lose the one who created me? Friends, do you love your family more than Christ? Do you love your family more than Christ? Right? And, and, and most of us are probably not in a situation where you know, we're facing possible arrest at the hands of our family members. Some of us do have to deal with hostility from family because of our faith. And so that love of family could be tested in that situation. But there's 
subtle ways that we can love our family more than Christ too. You know, as you consider the dynamics of your family, whether that be immediate or extended, right? Are you concerned more with making your family happy than with obeying Christ? Do your actions work towards the end of pleasing your family members, even to avoid conflict, or is obedience to Christ the first motive that you have? Spouses, does, does peace at all cost interfere with a biblical understanding of roles within marriage? Parents, are you more concerned with um, the time you spend doing things for your kids, extracurriculars, all these things, than about cultivating their hearts to know and love Christ? Are you afraid to talk to family members about Jesus because of what they might think? Does, does family time interfere with your attendance of corporate worship? Right? These are all subtle ways that are socially acceptable, but they can reveal we love our family more than Christ. And really, we need to flip it around. The best way for us to love our families is to love Christ more. Our families cannot bear taking the position that Christ should occupy. He is worthy of that praise. He is able to do all those things. He is able to satisfy our souls. Our family is not. So to love our families best, we must love Christ more. And as difficult as that teaching is for us, Jesus isn't done. Right? He's not done. We feel the knife start to poke a little bit, but Jesus is pressing it in to our hearts further. As we look at verse 38, we hear Jesus say, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Our second whoever statement here, whoever would be Jesus' disciple must take up their cross and follow him. And we might get our feathers ruffled by Jesus demanding priority over our families, right? That might rub us the wrong way, but we can probably get past that. But, but Jesus doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just demand priority over our family members, but over us, over our own lives. And he gives us another hard saying here. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And this is a fairly well-known verse, right? We sang a whole uh, hymn about it this morning. Right? We're familiar with this teaching of Jesus, and we often refer to it in the Christian life. And, and just like in verse 37, this is not what a person must do to be saved, but this is what a person must do now that they are saved. And Jesus' disciples are, are called to do two things here. We are called to do two things here by Christ. First, a true disciple takes up his cross. Whoever will not take up his cross is not worthy of me, Jesus says. So, we flip that around, a true disciple takes up his cross. And this teaching of Jesus about his disciples taking up their cross is something we see several times in the Gospels. It's a significant teaching of Christ. He repeats it often. And I think there's an aspect here, of course, of, of, of prophecy, right? Jesus is speaking of what he himself would do. But even if his, his hearers did not understand that he was foretelling his own work, they would have gotten the basic idea. They would have known what it meant to take up a cross because they had probably seen a crucifixion. Crucifixion, of course, is a method of execution in ancient Rome used for those criminals whose crimes were particularly heinous and scandalous. 
is a public method of execution, and it had a lot of stigma attached to it. It was disgraceful. To take up a cross would, would refer to the journey that the condemned would make. And we see this, of course, with Christ. They'd pick up their cross and they would carry it past mocking, angry crowds to the place where they would be crucified. And no doubt, part of what Jesus is calling his disciples to here is, is public scorn and social disgrace that a real-life cross carrier would experience. To carry a cross would mean that you were, uh, you were subject to anything those crowds wanted to do. You had no rights under Roman protection at that point. They could do anything they wanted to. The true disciple of Christ must be willing to experience mockery, shame, ridicule for their faith. That's an aspect of what Jesus is teaching here, and that's a very relevant concept for our age. Uh, in America, Christianity has enjoyed a dominant position for a very long time. But social attitudes about Christianity, of course, has changed a lot. Much of the public discourse regarding Christianity is negative, very negative. Christians are bigots, closed-minded, hateful. Well, nobody wants to be called those things, of course. Perhaps some of you, there's a, a pressure that you feel, uh, an underlying desire to be accepted by the world. You don't want those labels, and there's a, a temptation to maybe, maybe water down the gospel. Or maybe make Jesus in your own image and take parts out of his word, right? We, we cannot do that. Jesus says the true disciple must be willing to endure that mockery, that hatred, that negative publicity by the world. And the person who's unwilling to take up their cross and experience that ridicule is unworthy of being Jesus' disciples because what do they prize above him? They prize the approval of man. And of course, we cannot deny the obvious here. We cannot avoid it. There's a potential aspect of martyrdom Jesus is referring to as he says this to the twelve. I remember, that's his immediate audience, the twelve apostles. And church tradition tells us that these men probably were martyred, literally taking up their cross to go and die for preaching Christ publicly. And these things are church tradition, but they're, they're uh, weighty, I think. Right? Peter is thought to have been crucified upside down at his own request since he did not feel worthy to be crucified in the same way as Christ. Andrew, the apostle, was crucified. Thomas was killed by the spears of four soldiers, it's thought. Philip crucified. Matthew may not have been martyred. He may have been stabbed to death, different accounts. James, the son of Alphaeus, thought to have been stoned and clubbed to death. Simon the zealot was executed after refusing to worship an idol. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was burned to death. Uh, Paul was beheaded. The Apostle John is really the only one who, uh, who got off a little easy, died of old age. Yet, again, it's thought that he uh, was probably boiled alive in oil, uh, exiled. So he did not have it easy either. And yet God brought him through that. He died of old age. But Jesus' words for the twelve have a particularly literal ring to them. They literally, some of them, would go to be crucified. They would experience this in their own lives. And even as we look past the apostles to the early church, they faced martyrdom too. One particularly notable example, Polycarp, who, who when told by Rome that you deny Christ, we'll let you go. It's fine. We won't execute you if you deny uh, the Lord. He responded, with 86 years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
I bless thee for considering me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians, of course, in other parts of the world today, Middle East, parts of Asia and Africa, understand the literal implication that to be a disciple of Christ means that they must be willing to die physically for him. Again, that's a hard saying. That's weighty. It's not a reality that we face in this country, but it's weighty nonetheless. But even for us who live here in the West, in America, where martyrdom is not a possibility, this verse demands something of us too. A person carrying their cross would be carrying it for one purpose, to die. You don't carry your cross to a promotion, right? You don't carry your cross to a vacation. You carry it to die. Jesus is essentially calling his disciples here to come and die. This includes dying spiritually to self. And this is a metaphor. This, this, is, this demand of discipleship is a metaphor that comes up repeatedly in Scripture. Now, Paul writes in Romans 6, chapter 6, that we know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 6.14, far be it, For me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. One more, Colossians 3.5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. We see that metaphor, go and die. What does it mean to take up your cross spiritually? It means go and die Daily, to die to your old self, to die crucifying your old nature, to die to the world. This is the daily work of the Christian. The, the, the uh, old dead guys that I find much benefit in reading, the Puritans, they describe this as mortification, to put to death, mortification. This is the daily work of the Christian, to die. To deny our flesh and its sinful desires, to deny the world's pleasures, to die daily and all by the Spirit's power and the glory of God. That is what we are called to do. And whoever Jesus says is unwilling to do this, it is not easy work. Whoever will not take up his cross, he says, is not worthy to be his disciple. Not fit, not suitable, not worthy. Brothers and sisters, where do you stand in that work of mortification? Do you wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to have a battle with the flesh today. I'm going to have a battle with the world today. And God, by your help, I want to put my love of the world and my flesh to death. So often that is not our first thought. We jump right into our busy lives. We go about things. We fall into the same old patterns, the same old sins. And we repeat that day after day after day. And yet Christ says, no, take up your cross and die daily. The second thing he calls us to do is to follow him. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me 
is not worthy of me. A true disciple, second, follows Jesus. What does that really mean? What does that really mean? At its most basic level, right? It means to live as he lived. But really, this means in practice to obey him, regardless of the cost. That's what it means, to submit to his will, to go where he leads, to follow him. Jesus makes no promises of grandeur to the disciples, no promises of comfort. The opposite, in fact. He tells them, take up your cross and follow me. Maybe to your physical death, certainly to your spiritual death. As the old man is put to death daily. But Jesus says, whoever is unwilling to follow him is not worthy to be his disciple. What we must understand is that we as disciples don't get to choose the path. We as disciples do not get to determine where we go. Jesus is up here. Well, I'm going to take a shortcut. I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to, I'm going to just hang out here for a little while. That's not our call. If we are his disciples, then we must follow him where he leads, where he commands, where he says. And we see here in this verse, it is a path of death to self, a path of suffering potentially. A path of, of crucifying the old man. And whoever is unwilling to walk this path, Jesus says, is not worthy of him. Once again, we must consider ourselves here. This is a hard teaching. He's not just demanding priority over our families, but over our own lives and choices and preferences. Maybe you've made a verbal profession of faith in Christ, right? And you said the sinner's prayer when you were, you were 6 or 16 or 60, whatever, right? Maybe you've made a profession of faith in Christ. You've been willing to do Christian things. But are you actually willing to take up your cross and follow him? Or is it too hard? You might do a little here, a little there. But it's too costly. It's too demanding for that really to consume my life. You know, are you, are you unwilling to repent of sin? Do you, do you nurture it secretly, putting on a good outside like the Pharisees and yet being unwilling to deal with the sin of your own heart? Are you unwilling to submit to Christ outside of those areas that, that you've put a, a, an okay for Jesus sign on, right? Jesus can touch this and this and this and this, but this stuff over here, nope, that's for me. Are you unwilling to detach yourself from worldliness, or is that what you pursue? Are you unwilling to let go of control of your own will and surrender to Christ and His Word? Because if you are unwilling to do these things, to take up your cross and follow Him, how can you be His disciple? Right? A dino, disciple in name only, right? You cannot have your old self. You cannot have the world. You cannot have your sin and Christ too. It is a choice. And objectively, right, as we think of our Lord, He is far more valuable than anything we could possibly imagine. He is the treasure chest of heaven. And that is why He is not a raging egomaniac for making these demands on His disciples. Right? If I were to stand up here and say to you, Unless you, you know, love me more than your family, you know, right? You'd be like, that guy's a cult leader. He's crazy, right? 
Jesus is making those demands, but he is not doing it in that way because he objectively is more worthy than anything else, more than your family, more than your job, more than your life here in this world. He is far more precious and worthy, but the question subjectively is this, what is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you? Is he of more value to you than your family? Is he more valuable than the passing pleasures of sin and of the world? Is he even more valuable than your own life? And brothers and sisters, if you examine your heart and find that he has become less worthy, less valuable to you than these things, then turn back to him. Repent. He always receives his wayward disciples back. Just ask Peter. And ask him, just as we sang this morning, Lord, be thou my vision. Be everything to me. Help me to love you as you are worthy of, Lord. Help me to value you and prize you as you are worthy of, above all other things. Because that's not our natural inclination. That's not our natural state, which is why Jesus must say such hard teachings here. Because it's not what we wake up in the morning naturally doing most of the time. And so we need His help. He is gracious to give it. But are we willing to do the hard work to pursue it? Ask Him. Ask Him to change your heart. That you might be able to say with the psalmist, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christ is worthy. May we consider him so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, how wretched we are. Lord, in truth, not one of us could stand before you today and say that we have loved you as you are worthy of. And we confess that to you, Lord. Lord, you are amazingly kind, amazingly gracious and merciful, amazingly patient with us. Because, Lord, there are times where we do not act in a manner and do not love in a manner that is worthy of you. And how kind you are to call us back to yourself to remind us with hard teachings of the cost of discipleship, but, Lord, of your own worth. Lord, may that become the greatest desire of our hearts to love you above all. Expose those areas, Lord, where we prize other people and other things above you. Where we've devoted ourselves more to those things that are not you. And we need your help with this, Lord. Would you change our heart in those areas? For you are worthy. You are precious. Your steadfast love is better even than our own lives. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to rise to the call of discipleship. We cannot do it by ourselves. We struggle even to desire to do it by ourselves. But we thank you that you have given us your Spirit, Lord, to be with us, to empower us, to convict us, to guide us, 
and to change us. Lord, please do so for the sake of our discipleship to you and the glory of your name. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.